the highest level politicians are basically calling for the end of these investigations. That has a chilling effect on soldiers who are being asked to come forward with information. So that, that is definitely a problem. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. Today's guest is Carla Fersman. Hi, Carla. Hi, nice to be here. She's currently a senior lecturer at the University of Essex School of Law. Uh, you previously worked in Rwanda in the very early domestic criminal trials for Amnesty in London, working in the Great Lakes region, later in Sarajevo. I'm just making all of this up, but you know, this is what we've read about you. In 2001, you joined the NGO Redress, and you've been the director from 2004 until last year. Now you're in Essex. Uh, we're going to focus our chat on the allegations of war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by British forces in Iraq and how that involves the International Criminal Court. Um, for some background, Britain was part of the US-led coalition that invaded Iraq in 2003, and because London is a member of the ICC, the court can investigate alleged war crimes committed by British nationals in Iraq, even if Iraq isn't a member. But that um, initial ICC probe that we were all looking at back in the early 2000s was closed in 2006. And then it magically reopened in 2016 with new evidence on the systematic abuse of detainees. The court's looking at allegations, again, from what we've read, of willful killing stroke murder, torture stroke inhumane treatment, rape stroke sexual violence. Um, but the UK is also investigating the incidents. That's what we want to explore. And yeah, Carla, I saw a report from last year where you've said that the criminal investigations uh, that the UK is doing are inadequate, ineffectual and lack transparency. Um, anything else wrong with them? Oh, I think that's already a pretty long list. Um, if you look at the investigations, um, I think it's important to think about the context and also the public debate that surrounded these investigations. You mean the public debate in the UK? Exactly. You had senior government officials, including um, the uh, prime minister, the minister of defense, making statements publicly about the allegations themselves were not uh, worthy of being investigated whilst the investigation was going on. So really undermining from the start? Undermining from the start, there was always the sense that the only reason why these investigations were proceeding was because there was this, this risk and actually this possibility of an international criminal court investigation, which the UK government didn't want. So what we've got is the investigations going on but you say because of the pressure of the ICC, yet at the same time, the uh, the British government saying these aren't very legitimate investigations. Exactly. So two, two kinds of pressure. So the ICC on the one hand, the fact that there was an investigation that, that was open, then closed, but now opened again. Um, but also the civil courts have taken an interest in the UK about these types of allegations because some of the individuals, family members, have brought civil claims for redress um, before UK courts. And as part of that process, 
there have been questions about the need for the UK to open criminal investigations. So the civil courts have played a role in putting pressure on the continuation of these uh, military investigations, which are still, in a manner of speaking, going on. In a manner of speaking? Well, if you look at the number of the allegations, they started at about 3,000 by the time the Iraq historical allegation uh, uh, team was, which is a special investigation framework that was set up to deal with the allegations because they were so numerous, it was eventually shut down. Um, By the time it was shut down, the number of allegations was, I think, about 1,400. And that was taken over by... Uh, the military prosecution service uh, through a special division called this, and I might get this wrong, the Service Police Legacy Investigation. Um, And that SPLI for short um, has taken the investigations from 1400 to now about the last statistics which were reported in middle 2019 was about 127 open investigations. And do we know what is happening with these investigations? Is it um, clear to you or researchers what actually they are investigating? Um, well, we don't know uh, precisely which allegations they are investigating, but there were a number of notorious incidents relating to abuse of detainees. The most famous, the one which has received the most attention, is the death in custody of a hotel worker, Baha Musa, um, where his body was found with a range of different injuries to it, I think 97 injuries to his body. And that, my understanding is that it's still open. Uh, There are a number of other allegations which remain open. What's difficult is to know precisely the status of each case because there is not so much information on the official website, and there hasn't been much transparency as to the scope of the cases. But if they've reduced the number down, that would suggest that uh, they found no merit in some of those allegations. Yes, but in the research that we conducted last year, which led to this report that that, uh, I issued with um, uh, a colleague at the University of Ulster, what we determined was that the reasons that they used um, were, were, were quite disturbing. They were, they were using quite, quite significant um, tests to, to determine whether or not a case should proceed or not. And one of, one of the aspects which they took into account to shut down cases was the fact that there was a lawyer who had launched quite a, a number of the allegations who had brought the claims, who eventually, through proceedings, was disbarred for some of his work. Um, The allegations that he brought um, were not necessarily tainted, uh, but his actions uh, were deemed to be inappropriate by a, a regulatory body in the United Kingdom. And that really sort of painted everything as being... Uh, not uh, not worthy of investigation, well, or there, at least the authorities use that. There appeared to be a direct correlation 
between the cases that were 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 put to the uh, to 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 be investigated through him and the closure of those cases. Um, because of the negative inference that was made that because the cases came through this one particular lawyer, they must necessarily be tainted, which in my view is not an appropriate consideration to take in mind. Uh, certainly, perhaps it would be appropriate to uh, make added in inquiries in relation to those cases, but to make a direct inference and not to proceed with those investigations is problematic. And do you think, I think the case of the hotel worker is also one of those cases where civil court, civil claims were launched. Do you think that's also one of the reasons they keep investigating that? Is that also part of the kind of pressure scheme on that? There is, because uh, senior, senior judges in the United Kingdom have determined that um, injuries, uh, injuries were, were caused as a result of the actions of the UK military and they found damages, significant damages, in a number of cases. So clearly, in terms of the investigation phase, to not submit those cases to prosecution goes against certain findings that have been made by uh, UK senior, senior judges. If you're going to summarize the UK uh, response to your uh, report and what, what their point of view is on this, what, what do they dismiss entirely? What do you have to say? Well, certainly, um, the fact that there are still allegations which are open, which haven't been closed, is a sign that uh, there is there is evidence in their view, even even despite this. Um, but they have been under quite a lot of pressure to close down as many cases as possible. Um, parliamentary committees have looked into this. There is a sense that the very junior soldiers are being put before investigation committee after investigation committee, and it's really not fair to them. Because it should be people more higher up carrying the can? Well, the fact that higher up people have not been investigated is certainly a problem. But for the uh, young soldiers, uh, their actions uh, have been before investigative committees, they and, and then those investigative committees have di dismissed them, then a civil court says, well, that wasn't a proper investigation. It needs to be compliant with the investigation standards of the European Court of Human Rights, which is what's happened, and then a new investigation has been started. So these young soldiers certainly are um, having a difficult time not knowing where they stand with respect to allegations which they thought they'd seen the other side of. Um, but really what the heart of the problem is, is that the investigations were not sufficiently robust from the start. So you've had the court's involvement in saying, well, no, these cases need to be reinvestigated. We managed to catch up with Andrew Cayley, the UK's top military lawyer, to ask him what the arguments are from the British side. The position that we have um, is that we believe that we are doing genuine investigations and prospective prosecutions. Uh, we certainly are doing open investigations, so which is what the ICC now does. In other words, 
you don't start an investigation by targeting a specific individual. If you do that, you generally fail when you take it to court, as a number of international prosecutions have demonstrated. What you do is you set out on an investigation with an open mind and you go where the evidence takes you. And if you look at the ICC policy, that's exactly what they're doing now. That's been a practice in the United Kingdom for many, many, many years. That that's how we do it. So that's what we do. But certainly in terms of the responsibility of more senior people, um, the investigative teams have been taught about command responsibility. Nobody has been told to only investigate low-level perpetrators, as has been suggested in these reports. But you've got to rely on evidence. There's got to be evidence to support these kinds of allegations against very senior people and I haven't seen any of that sort of evidence to date in these cases in terms of very senior people. But are you being transparent about how you're looking at things and then dismissing some of the cases gone down from 3,000 to um, what 1,000, 1,500 now, less than that? I mean, we, we, we publish these results, but we obviously don't publish the way that we make decisions we can't because of the nature of these cases. You know, there are people who are, you know, who've been implicated. You can't go public with that kind of information. The ICC doesn't go public with that kind of information until they bring formal proceedings against somebody. You know, what I can tell you is if you look at the most obvious cases that we have decided not to pursue they are cases where you cannot identify a victim you cannot identify a perpetrator there's no ever there's no medical evidence in cases of violence to support somebody being injured so in in essence you really are on a wild goose chase and we have tried to concentrate our resources on those cases which have evidential legs where it may get to a point where we could prosecute somebody and, and we haven't made that decision yet in any case to prosecute anybody but those are the cases that we're concentrating on and in fact as you know the High Court of England and Wales there's a High Court judge who is appointed to oversee all this work he knows that we're taking these decisions it's been put to him that you know we have to take a proportionate response because we only have so many resources and he's approved of that you know I've got the language of the judgment here it's the Al Sadoun case where we presented all of this to him and he agreed with the approach that we would take. You know, we have to do triage. There's also the suggestion that um, uh, your investigations are really just for show in order to keep the ICC off your back. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly, I mean, I, I, mean, I read about this when people say this to me but I'm the Director of Service Prosecutions I think I probably know about that if that was true. Um, you know, I know it's been said by people but that's certainly not the reason why I'm doing all the people within the service police legacy inquiry are doing this work and in a sense it's at you know these kinds of allegations quite insulting to them in a way I mean there are very dedicated people working on this stuff genuinely um, and they're not people that have sort of engaged in this I mean I don't you know I've worked in other places in the world where these things go on. I know what it looks like. You know, I've worked in Southeast Asia. I've worked in North Africa. I know what that looks like. And I, you know, the one thing about my country that I'm very proud of is the rule of law. You know, we are, you know, and it's a trite phrase, I know, but we are a nation of laws and not of men. And it's simply not true that this is some kind of 
charade that we're going through. These are genuine investigations. Tens of millions of pounds have been spent on them. You know, we have a dedicated team of investigators and lawyers looking at this stuff. You know, I, I have other work that I do as a director. I mean, I'm dealing with all the domestic prosecution. I spend a lot of my time doing this. Um, so, no, it's not just being done. We have a legal domestic obligation. We have to fulfil our requirements too under complementarity, but we have, we have domestic legal obligations here and we're, we're carrying them out. Thank you. So this case is very UK specific, but it raises certain questions for the ICC case and the ICC is kind of looking into uh, possible British um, um, crimes in Iraq, but keeping off because of complementarity. So as long as the UK is investigating them and doing a good job, then the ICC can't step in. I imagine that the ICC is not going to want to state that the UK has failed in its investigative obligations until the UK stops investigating. Uh, that is my sense. But it's quite interesting because as part of the general push on efficiencies that states parties to the ICC are pressing for, the UK government, if you read its submissions, has uh, come out and encouraged the International Criminal Court, the Office of the Prosecutor, to cut down the amount of time that cases spend in preliminary examination. Which is where this one is at the moment. It isn't a formal investigation. It's being considered by the prosecutor. So... Taking that into account, one can see that the, the political advocacy in relation to a state party of the UK, um, there are certain linkages with what's happening in the UK and the overall interests of the government not to see this case proceed before the ICC and to have the investigations back home slowly, carefully being closed one after the other. The ICC has to constantly stay back. It, it, they can't get involved until the state party says, oh, you know, we, we're not, uh, we haven't done enough. Well, in our view, it would be time for the International Criminal Court prosecutor to take a stand and say, listen, clearly these cases aren't going anywhere in the UK. Um, this is not a genuine investigation which is capable of leading to a prosecution. There hasn't been a single, of all the cases, the, the, the claims uh, that I have mentioned, not a single one uh, has uh, gone independently for a prosecution. There's a few court-martials, but uh, none of them related in convictions, and uh, the matter has not, has not proceeded at all. There's an underlying challenge, though, I think. The fact that the UK, from the very beginning, so at the field level in Iraq, the initial investigations were obviously limited. Uh, and the court-martial into this Bahamusa case, um, which uh, led to uh, one very junior soldier pleading guilty for a, for a lesser offense, and the rest uh, were acquitted in that process. The judge from that process called it a closing of the ranks. That was the word that the judge used. 
uh, which is a really interesting statement. If you think of it from the ICC perspective, is the Office of the Prosecutor better placed to break through that closing of the ranks than the UK military justice system? Not clear. No, it's not clear, because you could argue it the other way, that because they're part of the same system, there'd be more respect between each other. But you're suggesting that outsiders could could uh, place a better light on what's going on. Possibly, but it's it's not quite clear, because it may be that there will be a problem with respect to cooperation um, if the the military apparatus, those who are not interested to see a case proceed, um, don't uh, supply information to the Office of the Prosecutor, then it will be difficult for the Office of the Prosecutor to take a case to court because all cases rely on clear evidence. So evidence is the name of the game. Either you have it or you don't. So that, I think, is the biggest problem. And in the UK cases, have you seen already that the judge called it a closing of the ranks in that case? Is it in other cases also obvious that, although it's not said, um, there is a kind of, you don't speak about this? As someone who's outside of the process looking in, I uh, wouldn't have access to the details to know for certain whether that indeed happens. But because the highest level politicians in the media are basically calling for the end of these investigations, that has a chilling effect on soldiers who are being asked to come forward with information. So that, that is definitely a problem. It feels like one of the ICC's main supporters is not necessarily supporting the rule of law. The Ministry of Defense has a uh, basically a, a, a call, it's doing a consultation about possible measures that can be taken to reduce the risks facing soldiers who serve abroad. So this started with a number of inquiries, which were led by the Defense Committee. So it's a parliamentary committee, which looked into the matter. Um, and uh, the problem as it was articulated by that parliamentary committee was the problem of investigation and reinvestigation. So focusing on the difficulties facing these young soldiers who could not get closure through the process, which I think is a real problem. Um, the defense committee has uh, dealt with the matters raised by the defense committee and in fairness, the Defense Committee has made these recommendations itself, not to make initial investigations more robust so as to ensure that where there's a real allegation, those investigations can proceed, justice can happen, but justice should be swift. That should be the natural answer for a country that respects the rule of law. But instead, what the Defense Committee has recommended and what is now being taken up by the Ministry of Defense is the suggestion to introduce quasi-amnesties for, um, for, for soldiers who are serving in the armed forces. I say quasi-amnesties because they're certainly not framed that way, though the impact may 
be not so far off from that concept. Essentially, what is being put forward is a suggestion, number one, of a statute of limitations for investigations, which the date isn't clear, but uh, the term of 10 years has been thrown around. That would chop off the Iraq allegations. It would also, most importantly, and we haven't talked about that here, chop off the Northern Ireland caseload, which is well in the minds of uh, the military in the United Kingdom. Um, so statute of limitations for criminal cases, number one. Number two, a presumption against reinvestigations. Um, how would the presumption operate? Not really clear. These are um, consultations about possibilities, so it isn't clear how it, how it would really work. But if there was an investigation, there would be a presumption that it would be valid. And in order to reopen, there, it, there would need to be uh, extraordinary circumstances. The question is, what is extraordinary? And would, in these, if these changes in law happen, would that um, matter with the ICC? Can they not say, well, you said 10 years, but we know, you know we don't have that statute of limitations. It falls within our remit, or is that too much to ask for the ICC to go against one of its big supporters? I do think that if this 10-year uh, statute of limitations is put in place and the Iraq caseload is dumped as a result of that, then the ICC could do no other than say there isn't a possibility for these cases to be investigated at the domestic level. So if anything, it falls into the hands of the ICC. So it seems to be a bit counterproductive. But just to say as well that the consultations are also considering changes to civil litigation. So it is possible, and a lot of the allegations first came to light through claims brought by families of victims in UK courts. That has been a really important process. So the government is seeking to get rid of that um, in terms of a fixed statute of limitations and to reduce the discretion of judges to equitably toll uh, what would normally be a short statute of limitations, which could be extended, So, which is a normal principle of law. So for instance, in child sexual abuse cases, you often have uh, a six-year limitation period extended uh, for quite a long time. Um, it's quite quite a normal occurrence for, for a longer statute of limitations in civil cases. One thing that the UK government has already done is it's removed the possibility of legal aid for those kinds of extraterritorial cases. That's my understanding anyways. So, uh, Carla, we always ask people the, uh, the same questions at the end of the podcast, and we just want to, uh, to put these to you. Um, what does everybody get wrong about your work? What does everybody imagine you do that, uh, that they get wrong? Well, I think working in human rights for so many years, people who look at what I do and the causes that I've taken up over the years assume that, one, I'm a bleeding heart, or two, that I have no objectivity whatsoever. And I think both of those things are probably, for anyone who knows me the furthest, 
from the truth. Uh, one simply takes on cases and uh, pushes them to the extent that they deserve being pushed. And it's the lack of justice which motivates us to continue. So that would be how I would frame that. What have you read or seen recently that you recommend? And it doesn't have to be in your field, but it can very well be in your field. It's a good question. I have sitting on my bookshelf uh, about a quarter finished a uh, book by Lindsay Hilsom on um, the very famous journalist who lost her life in Syria. And I... Um, I'm meaning to finish that, and I think it's an incredible story. I've picked it myself as one of my uh, my picks of uh, of things because uh, I I knew Lindsay, or I know Lindsay, but I never knew Marie, and uh, I uh, thought that uh, her story is a. It's an amazing example to all of us of what it's like if you're one of those people who runs towards trouble rather than away from it. What I found so interesting in the book, to the extent that I've gotten into it, is how Lindsay really portrays Marie in a full way with all her foibles, her personality and all the factors which make a person who she is. And that, that I think is quite exciting. And then our final question is always, what haven't we asked you that we should have asked you? About the subject that, uh, that we've been going into about uh, Iraq and uh, the ICC and the issues of complementarity. Why are more people not talking about it? I think that is a big issue. It's almost as if when uh, the government went after the lawyers, the human rights activists felt that they were only one step after. The media has been very cautious in terms of its portrayal of these cases more people need to be following this issue. Part of the reason why they're not is because the information is so dispersed. It's very difficult to follow. The information is kept very technical for that reason. And I think that has impeded the public debate on the issue. Also, because in the UK, there seems to be another issue, which is taking the focus of absolutely everything. And it starts with a B. Absolutely. Let's not talk about it. Elephant in the room, etc., etc. You do mean the Irish border. I do. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Carla, for, uh, for coming along and talking to us. And um, we will catch up with you again when there's another part of this whole drama that we can, uh, we can talk to you about, because we hope that there'll be another instalment. And as a parting gift we have for you, um, this little box that you will have to uh, we'll, we'll oh, open Stephanie's it up. Stephanie's going to open it up. It's, yes. a, it's a pain to open. Oh, wow. And it looks very, very exciting. It, but it's not super exciting, but we, we were pretty excited about it. <laughs> this is going to sound wonderful on the radio. Good. Well, it's our first opening on the radio. This is our asymmetrical haircuts mug. Ah, fabulous. This is great. Thank I you will use much. it. We'll take a picture of you, put it on the website. And um, thanks very much for listening. And we'll be back with more interesting women and their views on justice. Bye-bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub. 
home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.